So what is the greatest sorrow that you have ever experienced? What is that greatest moment of pain that you can personally recall going through in your life? I remember just about a year ago uh, when I kicked off the series that we're currently doing in John, I had my very last conversation with my dad. He was in a COVID unit. He'd been suffering for a while. And I remember one of my greatest fears was having that conversation or getting news of the loss of a loved one right before I would get up to preach. But God knows what He's doing. And I'm sure that you have experienced pain and sorrow in your life. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. Maybe it was a painful divorce. Maybe you've gone, you're a younger person. Maybe you've gone through a, a painful breakup of some kind. Or maybe it's a pain because you're still looking for someone. It's part of the joy of my job and what I do I get to, people, get to be with people who are grieving and people that are hurt. And I think, personally, one of the greatest pains that I've seen is sitting with mothers and fathers who have lost a child. And I've often thought that must be the greatest grief that any human being could experience here on earth. But as it turns out, there's a sorrow that exceeds even the loss of a child. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer and theologian, he wrote about a deeper kind of sorrow that one can experience while they're living life here on earth. He talks about this in a book he wrote called Day by Day We Magnify Thee. He said this, there are many kinds of sorrow on earth, but the deepest of all sorrows It's when the heart loses Christ. And he's no longer seen, and there's no hope of comfort from him. Only a few are so sorely tempted. All comfort has gone. All joy is ended. There is no help from heaven or sun or moon, from angel or any creature. There is even no help from God. But, he says, the world rejoices. He's saying it's the heart that no longer seeks comfort from Christ. And I think in little ways we often do this. It's our tendency. We're feeling anxious or maybe even in despair, but instead of turning to Christ, we turn to someone else. We turn to something else. And those things don't do what we hope they do. But when we do that, as Luther said, the world rejoices. Talking about the realm of unbelief, that which Satan has control over, that holds a set of values that are not Christian. But it's when we rest our emotions and our joy, even our worth and value sometimes on the stock market or social media likes and posts from alcohol, we seek comfort in ways that God does not intend. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're on the very verge of collapse. By the way, if you're in that place, you're going to find a lot of company this morning in the passage that we're going to look at. What I want to talk about this morning is how how do I find comfort in Christ for my troubled heart? How can I find comfort from the pain that we often experience in life? The passage we're going to read comes from John chapter 14 is one that I read at just about every single funeral that I do. I rarely stray away from this passage that we're going to look at today. And in some of his final words to his disciples, Christ was making it clear that he dearly loves us 
And we should have that love for each other. So please stand with me as we read John chapter 14, starting at verse 1. We will read 1 through 7, John 14, verses 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, and my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You may be seated. That was the inspired and inerrant Word of God. It's what we base messages on here. The only thing that gives me any authority to speak to you right now is the degree to which I follow the text that God has given us. We're in the middle of a series called A Living Hope. We're walking through this Gospel of John, and and John was focused on sharing the high truth about Jesus. And the things you're going to hear today weren't written to make you feel better. They were written because they were true. And by the grace of God, guess what? They can also make us feel better. And God gave us the intent, and the the Apostle John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us the intent of this book. We've been reading it together. I'd like to read it again this morning. Let's read it. Reference as well. John 20, 30, and 31. Everyone, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. This morning I want to talk about this comfort. And Jesus had given them a new commandment, we saw it last week, to love like He is loved. And He's coming into His last hours now on earth. And this morning I want us to see these five comforts from Christ that He gives us in this passage. Five comforts. So listen to this. The disciples are disoriented. They don't know quite what to make of the moment that they are in right now. They're in that Last Supper setting. Judas has just ran out of the room. They don't exactly know why. They know it has something to do with a a betrayal. Peter, who was the rock among them, was just said, you're going to deny me, just told by Christ, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And many of them are thinking, my goodness, Peter, the rock, if his faith is going to fail, how do I know my faith isn't going to fail? Things seem to be unraveling. This isn't at all what they thought was going to happen. In, In the previous chapter, in verse 31, Jesus said he was troubled. He was troubled because he knew what was coming. Now the 11 disciples are troubled because they don't know what's coming. And he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. 
That word troubled, we actually, it was interesting, we sang about it this morning. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's terrasso, it means shaken and stirred. And one, one of the songs that we sang, it talked about the waters being shaken and stirred. When the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee and a storm kicked up, that's the same word, the waters were shaken and stirred. It's something that we feel in a deep part of us, what the Bible calls the heart. It's where you experience this. I want to talk about that just for a moment, this, the heart. As a teenage boy, I had no idea what that was. was vaguely aware that there was one there. There's the physical heart that beats, but that's not at all what the Scriptures are talking about. It's this Greek word, cardia, and the Greek philosophers recognize it as that place from which we feel. If you go into the Old Testament, it's this Hebrew word love, and love and cardia are very similar to each other. They're practically the same word with the same meaning. And I read a, a paper this past week that was written on this biblical use of the heart. It was written back in 1880, and the professor described it this way. This is Dr. Goodwin speaking. It stands for the central part in general, the inside, and so for the interior man, now listen to this, as manifesting itself in all their various activities, in his activities, in his desires, affections, emotions, passions, purposes, thoughts, perceptions, imagination, wisdom, knowledge, skill, beliefs, reasonings, memory, and consciousness. All that stuff right there is what's encapsulated in the biblical idea of the heart. This is where the real you resides. Now, you can think about this in terms, if you want to think about this in terms of a cell phone for just a minute, okay? That little tiny card is called the SIM card. And if you take out that little tiny SIM card of your cell phone, and you take it and you put it into another cell phone, that cell phone becomes your cell phone. Because on that little card is all the stuff that makes your cell phone yours. And it knows where the photos are, and it knows where the contacts are, and it knows what apps you have. It knows all that stuff. So in essence, that is the heart of the phone. It's not the screen. It's not the processor. It's not the battery. It is that. Okay? That is the idea of the heart. If you didn't have the heart that you have, you'd be somebody else. That is your personality, your passions. That's why you like what you like. This is where we feel and love things. The Puritans would call this, this is where we set our affections. And we need to understand that when we get to the heart of what this passage is telling us. Now, Jesus, even though he should be, they should be comforting him, he's being the comforter. And he explains to them how to keep their hearts from being troubled. Now, this is an interesting verb. When he says, let not your hearts be troubled, I'm going to just geek out on you for one second here. If you like grammar, you're going to like this. It's a very interesting verb. It's a permissive, passive imperative. Now, what does that mean? Okay. Well, an imperative is a command, right? It says, you know, go do this. Well, a passive imperative is a, is a command that you don't do. Or rather, you're not performing the action. If somebody were to say to you, don't get eaten by a shark, right? Well, you'd hear that and you'd be like, okay, I won't. 
I won't jump in water with bloody meat strapped to my back or anything like that. Now, this goes a step further. It's a particular kind of passive imperative. It's a permissive passive imperative, meaning that it's a, a, a verb in which is, it's to say that God was giving them permission to not have a troubled heart. Don't let your heart be troubled. And God is giving them, Christ is saying, I'm giving you permission. You don't have to have a troubled heart. And then he tells them, first of all, this is first of our five, that you can find comfort in a person. You can find comfort in a person. And I thought I had that right there. Yes. Find comfort in this person. And um, So how do you keep your heart from being troubled? Look at what Jesus says. He said, believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, stop being troubled and trust in him just like they trusted in God. And he's driving this strong connection between he and the Father. We'll see that more next week. Because they are getting jacked up, and he knows that one commentator said in a very short time, life of the disciples was going to fall in. Their son was going to set at midday, and their world was going to collapse in chaos around them. And at such a time, the only thing they could do would be to stubbornly trust in God. Stubbornly trust. Why should the disciples not be troubled? Jesus moves on and gives them more comfort by giving them more truth. He's saying, look, my departure from you is an advantage. And look at verse Verse 2, he said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now, true, he's going away to prepare a place for them, and he will come and get them so they may be where he is. So the second place, he said, find comfort in me. You know me. You've walked with me. You've seen what I've done. But also find comfort in the place. Where is this? I want to take a deeper look, this what and where is it. And there was an old translation of the Bible. It was the Latin Vulgate. And if you grew up with the King James like I did, um, it translated that word monet as mansions. That there are these, that, that heaven was sprawling with all these mansions. Well, that's not exactly right. The word is actually meaning rooms. And in later versions of the Bible, it translates that word rooms. And that's got a different connotation to it altogether. And the picture we should get of heaven is not all these little individual mansions everywhere, but rather it's a massive massive structure. As a matter of fact, if you look at the dimensions of heaven, it's laid out in the book of Revelation. It's a 15, it's a cube with 1,500 mile sides. That would be from like the east coast to, uh, to Denver. It's a massive structure. And in that, there's a place designated for you. Now, I, it, it's hard to get your mind around. You like to use your imagination. Some kind of place, a room, an apartment, a, a, a condo kind of thing. I, it's, but there's a place in it for you. And if, and if you grew up in a home that was loving and accepted, and you always knew you had a place there, that's more the thought that Jesus is wanting to impress upon these 
disciples. Yes, you've got a lavish home waiting on you, but he's saying, look, hold on. There's something better than the lavishness of heaven, especially as how it's described in the book of Revelation. I love how Arthur Pink said this. He said, today the average home is little more than a boarding house, a place to eat and sleep in. But home used to mean, and still means to a few, the place where we are loved for our own sakes, the place where we are always welcome, the place where we can retire from the strife of the world and enjoy rest and peace, the place where loved ones are together. Such will heaven be. Believers are now in a strange country, in an enemy's land. In the life to come, they will be at home. And I can remember so many times I was in, I remember being in college and being in seminary. And when I worked away uh, from Dunbar, West Virginia, there was nothing like that trip going back home. Going back to Dunbar, 514 26th Street. Now, that didn't, have, that didn't look any different than any other house on the street. But it was very different to me because that house had all the people I loved in it. And I knew I was coming home to fresh-baked snickerdoodles. <laughs> you know, mom would make that special meal of baked steak and gravy. Man, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. That was home. And dad would be there and mom would be there. Usually she'd invite family over. I could just be there. No performance was necessary. People weren't going to judge me. I could just be. That's home. And there's a reason in this world we often feel like we're someplace we don't belong. It's because in a sense, you are not in your home. You're a stranger. You're an exile. We are sojourners in a foreign land for a little while. So we find comfort in this place that's coming, this lavish, beautiful structure that's going to come down and rest on an earth that God will completely remake. All things will be made new. But it's not just the place we find comfort in. It's also three. It's the preparation. The preparation. The preparation that Jesus is talking about here in these verses. You've got to be careful how you think of this because I've I've often heard this portrayed as, you know, for the past two, Jesus left, and now for 2,000 years, he's been hammering and chiseling and pounding the nails. That's not really what's in view here, okay? Um, it is actually the going itself through the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for Jesus' disciples. One commentator put it this way, the passage doesn't mean that these rooms need to be built for the Father's house is already, has the rooms ready. It is in Jesus' returning to the Father, a departure through the cross, that the way to these rooms will be constructed, and it is in His arrival there that the place will be prepared completely for us. You know, it's kind of like your house without your loved ones isn't, in it isn't really, it's just a house. What makes it home is who's there. Our experience of coming to this place will be one of overwhelming gratefulness to God's grace for bringing us there. We will not take pride in any private residence, but we'll discover that this residing is a life that is invited into the, res the residence, the presence, the rooms of Jesus himself. Prepared rooms are rooms where Jesus lives, which are the places he desires us to enter. So see the death and the resurrection of Christ prepare eternal salvation for his people, and the rooms in which he'll be with us. 
So what makes home home? Again, it's the people that are there, the people you love and, and love you, and Jesus is going to be there waiting for you and I when we finally show up to this heavenly city. It will be grand beyond your imagination. It's not a big, lonely house, but part of an enormous, gathered family. And if he's going to go to all this trouble to make these uh, preparations to go there, then what's he going to do? Well, he's going to come back and take his disciples to be with him. Okay, that's the promise. That's the promise that he's going to come back. And notice there's no mention of coming back to judge the nations. It's just that he's, this is a coming back. In verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And, and I will tell you at this point, these disciples are hearing this, and their heads are just swimming. What is he talking about? They're hearing the words, but they're, they're still clueless about what's going to transpire, even though he's told them and he's told them. Now, what about his return, or, or rather, what, what about this return is he referring to? Because he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected. He's going to come back. And he's going to be with the disciples. Is that the return that he's talking about here? But then there's going to be another going away, because they're all going to be standing around watching, and he's just going to, at one point after he's resurrected, he's just going to float up to heaven. Wow, I kind of get chills thinking about that. But when he does that, they're still going to be on earth. So I believe what he's talking about, too, this, talking about this is a reference to the rapture. This, the Bible calls it the parousia, the gathering. It's referenced in the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 and 7, 15 through 17. It's talking about this event. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Paul's addressing this church in Thessalonica, by the way, who's had a, a lot of confusion about when Jesus is coming back, he said, It will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, in that passage, again, Paul understands these Thessalonians, and I get it. They're like, you know what, life down here, it, it'd be stinking pretty bad. And they're looking at their watches. Okay, Jesus, come on, we're ready. They were agitated and they were restless and they didn't even understand, well, how is it that some of our fellow believers are dying? I mean, Jesus hasn't come back yet. What do we do with that? So this is the catching away of the Christians. I, the Bible calls it... Uh, the parousia, we call it oftentimes the rapture. I believe that this is an event that's going to happen that will precede a seven-year time of suffering here on earth. It's called the tribulation. And I love the way David Jeremiah says this. I believe it's going to happen that way until it doesn't. Then we'll have to go to plan B. But I believe this is how it's going to happen. Now, as I wouldn't go start a church on that. So that's the promise. and It's a promise. It's a guarantee about the future. And this is... This is like the best promise about the future that you could ever have. That if we die, we'll be with Christ. And who knows? Maybe we won't have to die. Maybe he'll come back before we die. It'd be, be really nice. But I don't have to go through that. So when Jesus says he's coming back, this is the moment he's talking about. This this 
promised to them and to us. And again, I can remember a time, um, I keep coming to these college references today. I was in college, and, and I got this horrible stomach virus. And uh, it was so bad. I remember I, I lived about 45 minutes away from, from home, and I called, and Dad answered. I was really hoping Mom would answer. You know, it's not the same. When you're sick, it's not the same. Dad answered, and I said, Dad, I'm, I'm really sick, and I got this stomach virus. He said, yeah, and, you know, he's like, yep, that doesn't sound so good, son. <laughs> well, we're all feeling pretty good here, so we don't want you spreading it around. <laughs> now, fortunately, Mom heard this. Kenny, would you go get him? He, can you not hear what he's saying? Kenny, get over there to that college and... So eventually he, he comes and he gets me. Well, he raptured me out of there, okay? He came and he got me, and he took me back home. That's where I wanted to be. That's the best place to be when you're, you're sick. And now Christ is going to go f- further, and he tells them in verse 4 of John 14, he said, and you know the way where I'm going. Now the disciples are again perplexed. They're already disoriented. They sense they're about to lose fellowship with Jesus. So Thomas speaks up. I love Thomas. He says in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. You know, eyes this big around. How can we know the way? The way. How do we get to where you're going? What path would you have us to take? And that takes us to our our final point here. It's the path. We can find comfort in the path. As it turns out, Jesus is the path. And in that verse, and many of you have probably memorized it at one time or another, and if you've never memorized it, I want to encourage you. We're going to say it a couple of times together right now. Let's read John 14, 6. I want to read this together off the screen two times. Let's start the reference together. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One more time. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the sixth of Jesus' I am statements. First, he states that he is the way. So he's directly answering Thomas's question there. He's saying, look, I'm the way. He is the way to get to the Father. He is the one in whom, and don't miss the faith component here, you'll miss it altogether. He is the one in whom we must place our faith in order to get to God, and we cannot neglect the role that faith plays here. That is the trust Now, Jesus also could not be the way if he wasn't also the truth and the life. Now, he's the way to God because it is faith in him and him alone that is the means to being with God in heaven. This is very important. Anytime someone makes the claim that there are many ways to God, come back to John 14, 6. And this was the mantra of the likes of Muhammad and Buddha and Gandhi. And some will tell you, no, it's through some kind of meditation. I'm here to say, no, it's not. It's John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am it. There is no other way. 
Only Jesus is the truth. These other people made truth claims about who they were, and people tried to relegate Jesus. No, no, he's a great teacher. He's a great prophet, but that's all he is. No, he isn't. Or rather, he is those things, but that's not just what he is. He's more than a good example. He's the truth. That is, he's the authoritative, dis- he's the authoritative discloser of who God is. And no one has ever done it as much as him. And he's different than the prophets who preceded him because the best they could do is point to the one to come. And Jesus said, I am the one who has come. And I speak the truth that was given. No, rather I am the truth. All the prophets could do was speak the truth that was given to them. Jesus said, I am the truth. He's also the life. Through his resurrection, he'll demonstrate exactly what he means by this, that he'll show us the eternal life that we all crave. He's going to die. He's going to come back to life, showing us this is what's going to happen to you when you trust in me. He's the source of life. From him, life came into the world. All things were made through him. The apostle Paul would say that we were created by him and even for him, and in him all things Hold together. All things hold together. Have you seen those pictures of the universe that have come through this new James Webb telescope? Of all those galaxies and all those stars. And they stretch out beyond what that telescope can even register. And Christ is the one holding it all together. They are swirling because he makes it so. And as big as that universe is with those trillions of of stars, is beyond imagination, even within your body right now, do you know that you have five octillion electrons inside of you? And if you start looking at the ratio, the size of one of those atoms in comparison to your body is almost like the size of the earth in comparison to the universe. And he's holding it all together. This thing continues day to day because he wills it to be so. He is the life. There was a, 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 a Thomas Akempis, who was, he was born in the 1300s, wrote a great book called The Imitation of Christ. It's a book, by the way, that John Wesley said is the best summary of the Christian life. And in that book, Akempis says this, talking about this passage in this moment, follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way there is no going. Without the truth there is no knowing. Without the life there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth. Life true, life blessed, life uncreated. As a matter of fact, Jesus is such a representation, revealer of God the Father, it leads us to verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That, by the way, furthers the idea of Jesus as what John says in back, back in verse 1, as the, the logos, the word, the very mind of God. And I'm going, and I... I hope that also addresses the notion of, of an angry God just looking to zap you. It's not how Christ describes himself. He says he's gentle and lowly. And 
I hope you can find comfort in this path. Jesus didn't, you know, just show up and, and point down some road and, and some trail and say, well, just go that way. That's the way. I'm going to shine a flashlight down the road. It's not very easy. Have fun with that. No, that's not what he did. He said, trust in him. You see, the problem that we have, it's not the circumstances and the crisis that you're in. It's the, how your heart is responding to it. And the problem is your troubled heart, and you can't control what comes down the path toward you. What you can decide is how to seek comfort. We live in a world that wants to keep you focused on the here and now. And, but God would have us to live with this eternal vantage point. And, and Jesus would say it is utter foolishness to find security in the things here on earth. Your 401k. Your finances. And I believe, and this is where the older saints among us get this much better. The ones who have lived a life of faithfulness. The one who have had the greatest losses, but you know what? They're still here. And many of the gray and silvered heads among us are some of my greatest inspirations in where to find comfort. And their hope rests in the Lord and nowhere else. And Jesus is saying that the more you trust me, the more you know me, the more you will find comfort. You may say, Chad, I'm trying. Chad, you can speak lowly and, and almost inconsequentially about the trials and the circumstances. You don't know my trials and circumstances. You're right, I don't. What I walk away from with this passage is to stubbornly find comfort in the promises of Christ. Stubbornly find comfort in the promises of Christ. I want to close with this as a story. Um, it was actually written by, by Leith Anderson. He's, it was called The Next Life in the House of the Lord. He said, My family and I have lived in the same house for 17 years. We lived more than twice as long as I've lived in any other place. He calls it our house. But more often he says it's my home. And he said, What makes it home isn't the address or the lot or the garage or the architecture. He said, It's the people. He said, you may live in a newer or a bigger house than I live in, but as nice as your house may be, I would never call it your house as, or refer to your house as home because the people who are most important to me don't live there. What makes home is the relationships. He said, what makes heaven? Heaven is not streets of gold, great fountains, lots of fun, no smog. That all may be, but I think heaven is far greater than our wildest imagination. And the same God who designed the best of everything in this world also designed heaven. Only he took it to a far greater extent than anything we've ever seen. Yet that's still not what makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven is God. It's being there with him. With his presence comes peace and contentment, fulfillment, a sense that all is well. That is also a contentment that bubbles over into the rest of life. We can anticipate that presence with God. We can be with him in a place where everything he wants happens the way he wants it to happen, and that affects this life as well. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we lean and trust in your promises, these guarantees that you have put out into the future that our hearts can rest on. And Lord, until then, I pray that we would take it one day at a time. 
that we would not worry about tomorrow, that we would challenge our worries and our despairs and our depressions with your truth, that we might have permission that our hearts don't have to be troubled, and that we can know the peace and comfort that you've provided us, Lord Jesus, through your death and your resurrection. Let our hearts dwell on that and that we would find comfort there. We thank you for all you have done in our world to show us yourself. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you all for being here today. Um, if you, I, I would love it if you'd stick around. We have a class on Romans that meets here. Pastor Kevin teaches that class. If you would like to stick around and help out with VBS, we could really use your help too. Otherwise, have a wonderful day. I'm up here at the front. If you're in need of prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you are unsure about your heavenly home, I'd love to talk to you about that as well. Otherwise, we'll see you soon. Have a great day.